On this week's Devils in the Details, Kabi Mainu snatches victory from the jaws of defeat for an on-again, off-again United. And Rasmus Hoyland extends his goal-scoring streak in the Premier League. Case, given how many challenges you gave me with this intro that people are not going to hear because absolutely not, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well, Aaron. I, uh, I'm actually, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in California visiting uh, my sister. So it's, it's been a nice weekend. Uh, also managed to cap, catch some of the football, which uh, obviously the, the results have been good. So can't complain. How, how are you? Yeah, I'm good as well. Um, finally settling into a routine and able to watch some more football. So I've watched four or five games this weekend for the first time in a while, which has been really, really nice. Um, the last of which was the Arsenal win over Liverpool today, which was a really good game. So I'm looking forward to getting into this. And we'll start with United, who have won two games in a row and scored seven goals. Can you believe that? <laughs> feels unprecedented. But how much of it is really the team getting better versus more players getting fit. How much does the coaching deserve credit for this? And how much do you think United have actually gotten better? Or do you think these score lines might be a bit of a misnomer? Um, Do we have any questions about this? We had quite a few questions about this. Um, Yeah. So I don't know that we need to address the the details of the questions that we got, because a lot of them were sort of in the same vein. Uh, I would say this. The execution in, in particular, the final third has been significantly better. You cannot deny that. I think, um, in particular, in the Wolves match, uh, there was a definitely a, a big difference in just the general quality on display. Um, which is, you know, I, I I think not that surprising. I still think these are good attacking footballers. Uh, we were able to play at speed, uh, and as a result, create big chances. Um, that was less true against West Ham, really didn't create uh, a lot of big chances. Yeah, otherwise, I don't see a lot of difference, I'll be quite honest with you. Uh, still extremely end-to-end, still struggling to even maintain like the majority of possession, which isn't everything, but against these sides, you should have the majority of possession. Um, and yeah, that, that you saw the, uh, the kick-on effect of that against Wolves, um, really lost control of that match. Probably should have drawn it. And yeah, obviously what Maynu does at the end is just a ridiculous piece of quality. But I think for me, no, no, no change here. Uh, this is all par for the course. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah, we'll get to to Maynu in a minute. I feel like in terms of the matches, I don't think they're tactically reinvented, but maybe an argument for these tactics not being disastrous with preferred personnel. Not that I think that it was an acceptable level of quality in, in especially in the West Ham game where I thought United were actually not even the better side for long stretches of the match. But um, 
I do think this was a lot more resemblant of a normal team in the top flight than what we've seen in the past few months, which has been absolutely awful. Um, and not that that's anything to write home about. Like, month 18 of this tenure, you want to see something more than just a normal Premier League side from Manchester United. But I think maybe there is something in this and explaining how... Not necessarily explaining the drop-off from last season, but explaining the extent of the drop-off. Um, I think we really are seeing how injuries have played a role in it as well, and not just the tactics, which are also problematic. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't really think there's anything to anything major from our from our podcast perspective to take away from that. I don't think this is a tactically different team. I think it's a team that's better at executing tactically um, because the players are better. And I think when you have players like, you know, we'll talk about the youngsters in a minute, but also players like Diogo Dalo, Luke Shaw, we should also probably talk about Dalo at some point in this episode. Um, even the goalkeeper, Onana, I think has played a big role in these performances. I think Lissandro being back, Maguire, having these players who can execute these systems at a high level is obviously going to make you a better team. And you're going you're gonna to look more coherent when you have top, top players throughout the side so yeah i mean i think that's the real takeaway here yeah i broadly agree with that i think also we we got we got one question that was um essentially it was about uh menu and the i I, i'm gonna answer this question about menu but i also kind of want to abstract it to towards what you're you're talking about um the question is this are we becoming too reliant on menu in midfield He's an incredible player, but I'm worried about him getting hurt or losing some form and losing the little bit of control we have. That's from Jack. Um, a few things on this on this question. Um, yes, I definitely think, obviously, Maynu too is... He's become pretty critical. Just, I think mostly from the perspective of he's very technically consistent and can physically, you know, play end-to-end of the pitch. Um, that said... A, I don't really think we have any form of control of these matches. Uh, I think what we, what he, like, 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 like I just said, I think what he does bring is this technical consistency, which means we can link play back to front uh, when the pitch is stretched, um, which is sort of, it just means we, we play a higher percentage version of the game we were already playing. Um, yeah, which I guess is sort of just a microcosm of a greater trend, which is, yeah, you're you're always going to be reliant on your on your better players. Like, there's always going to be you know the worry about a drop off if you take somebody who is elevating your team out. Uh, I don't think that necessarily is bad team construction. Like, that's just the reality of having good players. Like, you're going to have good players, and their backups are going to mean you can't play the same way. Um, but I think the bigger question here with Mainu is are you worried that at his age all of these minutes are going to have long-term consequences for who he winds up being later um and so that's kind of how I'm gonna I mean I I put that to you Aaron what do you think about that because that's what I worry about more than like if he loses form or gets hurt um what's going to happen to the quality of the team. I, I, I kind of view this as a lost season regardless. Um, 
I'm more worried about what the long-term consequences are of using him this frequently. Yeah, I mean, as much as I could criticize the tactical management of the team this season, I actually think Maynou's minutes have been managed quite well. He's not playing a terrible amount of matches. When he plays twice in a week, like you saw against West Ham, he got subbed off at around the 60th minute mark. They're really making sure he's not playing two or three 90s a week the way they put players like Bruno and Rashford through. Um, And I think that is the right thing to do. Like you said, this season is not that important in the grand scheme of things. You're looking at a player who was born in 2005, which means that, you know, he's probably going to be around or could be around until the late 2030s. And so you really don't need to burn the midnight oil this early in his career, especially when the season is already dying off. Um, And so, yes, his tactical importance does become a constraint. You need to, when you have these kinds of players, you need to decide what matches you need them in and what matches you don't. So, for example, if United draw a League One club in the fifth round of the FA Cup, there's no need to be outing Maynou for... 70 minutes in that match if you know you need him to compete against the biggest teams you should be able to win those matches even without him i know what happened against newport county but still um and in that regard i honestly think it's been pretty good i don't think he has played an excessive amount of minutes the way we've seen with the young players like pedri and even mason mount at chelsea i think we might be seeing some of the consequences of that now um I don't think that's a problem at this stage based on how much he's played, but definitely a risk as he becomes more important to the team that you're going to be pressured to play him more and more. Um, And I would say especially so if United are still in the top four race towards the end of the season, which like, I don't think United are going to get top four, but it's definitely not over yet. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely don't think top four is out of the question, like in terms of the math, but I will say I don't think we're one of the four best sides in the league and or even particularly close. And I don't think that's changing, um, at least with the with the current tactics, which, you know, there have been some really minor tweaks, but it's the same out-of-possession approach, and, and that out-of-possession approach means you do not control matches, and you don't control matches. You risk conceding, you know, gobs of goals, which we do. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll say this. There's a lot of teams in disarray or in confusion in the bottom half of the top ten. But United are sixth as it stands, and the five teams above them, I think, are all better. So, And also have a solid points cushion ahead of United. So I think this is an unlikely thing, but given that there's nothing else going on in the season anymore other than the FA Cup, I think it's relatively likely that it's going to be something United continue to shoot for until it's really, really, really unlikely. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we caught Spurs or Villa, to be honest, which those are two of the two teams in front of us, but like... The level at which they've been this season, I would have said it is an expectation for United to be better than those sides. Um, Based on how good I think the two of them have been over the course of the season. Spurs have been a lot better in periods where they have had their first 11 fit. Um, Like, the the difference is drastic. And I don't think Aston Villa have been as amazing as their points tally suggests. Um, I think they have gotten better over the course of the season. And I also think that they have been very good and are currently probably in the mix for fourth but I don't think they've been unattainably good if you have a squad of the level of this current United side which is where which is where the frustration comes in but also yeah they're catchable but I don't think it's particularly likely at this stage for United but anyway as it pertains to Maynou I think basically what that means is you know 
you need to be better than this every season from here on in. Like, you cannot be the seventh or eighth best team in the Premier League with the United's budget. It's just not, it's just not acceptable. And so you need to, if you're running the club, you need to be under the assumption that United are going to be better in the next 10 to 15 years than they are right now. If that's the assumption and Manu only has a certain amount of minutes to allocate over those seasons, you're not going to allocate so many of them to this season. You're going to use him in a way that allows him to maintain his current physical shape or improve it and not in a way that burns it out. Um, and then that's up to the sports scientist to decide how much that is. Cause I honestly have no idea. Yeah. Ag- agreed. Agreed. Uh, that said, I will say this. I think Martinez absolutely should not have been playing today. <laughs> like coming back from two major injuries. I don't understand why you play him twice in a week. Uh, that was bizarre to me. And obviously it was a contact injury. So, um, can't like really blame this particular injury on that choice, but I would have, I just, I, I don't get why you don't bubble wrap him a little bit more. Um, he doesn't need to play twice a week. Like this is one of the only times we're playing twice a week for like the next few months. Um, yeah, he could have missed this West Ham match. West Ham have been relegation quality all year, despite their standing in the table. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, you, you had some you had some suggestions about Erling Holland having some injury issues at Dortmund when he joined City. And if you observe the way City have managed him since they've had him, he basically only plays when they feel he can significantly increase their chances of winning. So if they're up 4-0, you'll see them take him off in the 65th minute. If they are down and he's on the bench, you'll see them bring him on. But if they're up and he's on the bench, they won't bother unless it's like a 10-minute run out to get fitness. Of course, they have the luxury of having other options that allows them to do that with more efficiency than United. If United don't play players like Lissandro Martinez, they're just a lot worse. But even still, players like Lissandro, I think especially Mainu, Garnacho, Hoyland, these are players who are going to be key for this team in the next generation, is what we hope. And so, really the priority is not to get the best out of them now, it's to maximize how good they can be for as long as they can be that good. Um, And that needs to be a key consideration, because, yeah, I mean, I'm beginning to worry about Martinez's injury situation. It's been most of the season at this point, and... He's a very these these players are good enough that they're incredibly difficult to replace. Like you can't just go to the market and buy another Lissandro Martinez. It's really difficult. Yeah, do you think that means he he himself is injury prone or do you think this has more to do with um injury management and usage? Cuz I I'll, I'll say my take. I'm not I don't think Lissandro Martinez is like inalienably injury prone in particular to contact injuries that doesn't really make sense. Um I yeah, I I just think you need to use him differently. Yeah period end of story he didn't have major injury issues before the last eight like these three consecutive injuries two of which have been kind of freak um yeah i i would be more interested in talking about usage than like do you need to replace martinez because he i don't know i this is another thing where like i usually don't think when you see a player getting injured over and over and over again that it's just like something inalienable about their body I think it's usually more to do with how they're training, how they're being used, and most more often than not, it's the frequency with which they're being used. I mean, it's to some extent both, and I do agree largely, especially in modern football, the load that is placed on these players definitely makes injuries more likely. Um, 
But I also think that at some point, if a player is poorly used or their load is poorly managed for a number of seasons, that can lead to permanent physical oh, absolutely. Um, injury issues, which is what I worry about with players like Lissandro and to an even greater extent Mount, who played like 200 matches for Chelsea in a short space of time. Yeah, he got crazy minutes um, in general in his teenage years. Like he was playing yeah. every match when he was on loan as well. Um, and I guess there's two sides of looking at it, right? There, one is that these two players have largely not played the season, which means that in theory, if they have some level of burnout, then they are actually possibly recovering from that. But then there's also the school of thought that like, maybe this is just an issue that has been developed by the way they're, they, they have been managed over the last few years. And it's something that's really hard for us to see as outsiders, but definitely something to keep in mind. I would not be... Also, like, I think United have largely not had... Obviously, Lissandro is United's best center back by, like, a reasonable distance. But I don't think the main problem or, like, a main problem has been when Maguire and Varane, two center backs who were in their 30s, have been fit. I think even after Lissandro went off today, I don't think Maguire and Varane were... I think West Ham is not the best is not the best game to make that point though. Sure, but there's ten other teams in the Premier League like West Ham who United like I don't think there are ten other teams like West Ham in the Premier League that are as passive and easy to play through. Um That's fair. No, in ter- from 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 a build up perspective, that's probably fair. But I, I do think by and large, this is not a player that at this stage of the season you need to be running out and risking injury to if you have players like Maguire and Veranda come in. If it was like Lindelof and Evans, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult. But I think with Maguire and Veron, you can just run them out. And if Lissandro's not fit, just don't play him. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I land. Like, I totally take your point. Definitely there are players who are more injury prone than others. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying this. I think a lot of the time we start having this conversation before interrogating their usage and whether their usage should change. And as a consequence, you don't have to have the are they injury prone conversation. And the other thing being most players who I think are actually injury prone, that is a product of like consistent overuse such that things about their body change in an irrecoverable way. Like I think Anthony Martial is a great example of that. Um, Like... I think all of the injuries ultimately took a toll and made him injury prone. I don't think his, he was originally injury prone. Um, yeah. I also think largely, if you look at the players at United who have struggled with injuries in seasons, there are a couple exceptions to this, but largely they have been players who played an incredible amount of minutes in the previous season. Like, I'm thinking Maguire, Shaw, and Rashford in the year Solskjaer got sacked. I'm thinking of Mason Mount and um, and Lissandro Martinez this season. Even Sofian Amrabat, he was playing for Fiorentina in Serie A. They went to the Conference League final. He was at the World Cup with Morocco. Like he's been playing a ridiculous amount of minutes. Even Casemiro, with the, the huge suspensions last season, played a ton of minutes. Casemiro has played like close to 50-90s all comps for the past seven or eight seasons. Um, and he's in his 30s. So I don't... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna assume causation here, but I think that's definitely something worth looking into and gives credence to your point. Yeah, or at least and, evidence. Anyway, po- point being, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think Martinez replacement is like, it's not even on my to do list. 
Um, no. Yeah. As for Mainu, I think the roadmap here is you manage his minutes carefully till the end of the season and just accept that you're going to be worse for it sometimes. Yes. And then in the summer, you buy a clone. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I, okay, a few things. It's hard to get. It's really hard to get someone as good as as Mainu, but you don't need someone as good as Mainu. You need someone who can do the things that he does at, like, a relatively close level. Yeah. So, and, yeah, I mean, I think teams are moving towards having two players for each position as opposed to just one. Definitely agree. A few for things. this exact reason. Yeah. How good do you actually think Mainu is? Because, like, I think he's fantastic for his age. I think he's probably, like, maybe unparalleled in at his actual like year of birth 2005 i'm not sure there's a better midfielder born in 2005 um that said i don't think he's like one of the best players in the premier league i do think he's still an 18 year old i think he still plays like an 18 year old he comes in and out of matches and that's that that is not a knock like i i'm praising him all the time so like this is just me saying like i i don't think this is like I don't think the team falls apart without him in it. And that's not because, again, I've been begging for him to play more minutes before he got this run of, of games. But, like, I think his game is, like, very... There's a lot of stuff to round out. And I don't think, like, this. he's so good that, like, United is just significantly worse without him in the team. Uh, I think it's United, United is significantly more watchable with him in the team. But that is a different thing. Yeah. Um... As far as deep midfielders in the Premier League go, I don't think he's one of the very best. As far as deep midfielders at Manchester United go, I think he is legitimately the best. I agree with that. By a considerable that. distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he's an above average, well above average player in the division, even at his age. I think he's which a, is I think he's above average. I think in his age group he is the best. Um I, I just think like Yeah. The, the reason I'm saying all this is is a few things. First of all, I think there's a, there's a tendency when you see players who are this young clearly belong in Premier League football. There's this tendency to be like, oh, they are stars already. When the reality is like, no, they're standouts in their age group with you know rough edges to their games, and they're probably going to be stars later. Um, like I think Rashford is a great example of this. Like when he came on many many years ago, uh, you know he scored. Four goals in his first two games. He scored three goals the rest of the season. Um, and I think there's this... He, he really didn't impact matches very much. Um, he was electric. He was fun to watch. But, like, there's a difference between... Clearly, this guy is going to be impactful, and you can see how. And this guy is actually impacting constantly. Um, I, I realize I'm, this is like, I'm just being a huge downer right now, but I think this is an important distinction to like understand part of why I'm kind of like, yeah, you don't need to use him every match, but also it's not my job. And I, so he's probably going to get like ridden into the ground, but um, I don't think so. I don't think the current usage of him or the usage of Garnacho over the last few seasons suggests that Ten Hag is actually going to do that to players who are under 20. I mean, I don't think but... if I think Manu is probably going to be like not dropped to the end of the season. I think that is too many Premier League minutes for a player his age. Maybe. Also, for what it's worth, I think United have, what, 15 games left, plus whatever they get in the FA Cup. So it's not actually that much of the season to go because of all the competitions they've been eliminated from. Yeah, but I think playing... I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think an 18-year-old should be playing weekly 
as a starter in the Premier League from like a physical, like taking care of their body standpoint. Like look at what has happened to, to all of these talented players that have come through at Barcelona in these past few years. Like they do not look nearly as talented as they do when, as they did when they came through. And that's largely a product of overwork. And obviously no, he's absolutely. not playing the number of minutes that like Pedri was, but I, I'm just, it makes me really nervous personally. Um, I'm definitely, it's definitely on my radar. I just don't think we've seen anything yet to suggest that that's actually how he's going to be used. And maybe we'll, I, I think there's a very good chance we're revisiting this in three or four weeks and he's played every minute and then we're like, okay, maybe it's time to ease off the minutes a little bit. But this week he played the 90 against Wolves and then he was taken off for McTominay after an hour against West Ham. And I refuse to believe that that was a tactical substitution. That's definitely about Manu's fitness. Sure. Right? Like, so it definitely seems like it's on the radar of the people who are managing the team. Right. I guess the, the distinction that I'm making is that would be minute, you know, management for an actual senior player. Somebody who's 23, 24 and has done this a few, few times. That's fair. He is not that. And so I think that is already too many minutes. Um, but I say this again, you can probably get this from what I was saying about Martinez. Like I am, a, I'm generally pretty conservative in terms of my ideas about, um, fitness management. Like I just don't, I think footballers right now play too many minutes. Uh, and I think a lot of the time you can't directly connect that to injury issues that they later have because it, it, it takes a while for the, the wear and tear to create risk, but that's 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 how I read it, and so I would just like to avoid that with this player who I love watching play, and I don't think is so good that you can't drop him ever, right now. Yeah, I think he's good enough that he's very difficult to replicate in the market. I think that's oh, absolutely. where I am. That's with a different him. thing. Yeah, but I think, yeah, yeah. I basically I agree. I think I stand by saying you manage his minutes, like you give him I don't know fifty to seventy five percent of the remaining minutes of the season. Yeah. And then you in the summer go, okay, let's get another 19 year old press resistant midfielder. Yeah. Don't have to be 19, market. but yeah, something like that. 21. Or, or yeah. I mean, that's also assuming you don't keep Amrabat because then I think you, you go and like we said before, you go and replace Amrabat with a 19 year old or a 21 year old press resistant defensive midfielder. Who's going to come in and be the exact like menu alternative. And then you go and replace Casemiro with a physical destroyer with also a lot of press resistance um, and progression. And that's how you rebuild this midfield. And then suddenly when you have those players, you don't feel the same compulsion to play players like Maynou every match. Yeah. Um, like I don't even... You'll get... I think in an ideal world, you aren't designing the midfield such that Maynou is an everyday starter next year. And that's not a quality thing. That's just me... That's how I feel about minute management. I don't think a 19-year-old should be, like, slotted in for 50-90s. Um, yeah. Well, to say this more tangibly, right, I think that the way I see this is Mount should get reintegrated and occasionally play minutes as one of the two deepest midfielders. I think Maynou should play minutes as one of the two deepest midfielders. And then I think you should replace Amrabat and Casemiro with two new players who are going to come in. And suddenly you're able to minute manage all of those players with relative efficiency. Um, I think that's how I would look at it. And I would leave it there. And every player who comes in at this point needs to be technically, like, these players, we're talking about Manu now. Next, we're going to talk about Garnacho, Hoyland, probably Dalo. 
Like, these players are the ones that should be setting the standard for everyone who comes in and the bar they need to be at technically and physically. Like, United can't sign compromises for squad quality at this stage, or squad minutes. Um, And that's maybe increasingly where I'm taking a more firm stance on Amrabat than I was in the summer, where I was like, United need this skill and the side's pretty good. Um, Just get him in because he has that skill. Whereas now I'm like, no, fix the issue. And then when all when all of the like big issues are fixed, then you can look at making more compromises to improve the squad. Um, I, I would again, though, come back to on Amrabat. This team just had like the, the tactical approach here means that nobody looks good out of possession in midfield. Nobody does. Uh, and it's. Yeah, I, I, I just think the conditions make it in a lot of different contexts. So players are covering more space than they should be uh, getting isolated more than they should be. And yeah, just the general, I think, yeah, it, I've said this so many times. We play far too end to end. When you play end to end, nobody really looks like they're managing the space that they're responsible for. Well, um, and I still think all of that is true, but I just think that I think Maynu's emergence kind of changes what you need from this. Sure. Where if Amrabat was the alternative to Maynu next season, I would be more comfortable with Maynu playing by like a considerable distance. Um, I think if you want to be of the idea that Maynu is still a teenager whose minutes need to be managed, then you need to get in someone else who you are comfortable with starting every single week. And I don't really think that Amrabat is quite at that level. Sure. I hear, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Whereas before, I think we were... I mean... I think I was of the frame of mind that Casemiro was still going to give you another, you know, season in this role, but I think time has proven that that's not going to happen. And I think that also kind of back to my logic for getting Mason Mount in. Um, But now I think you have Manu and Mount who are two very useful midfielders at this level, but we have some level of doubt as to how many minutes each of them are going to play next season. I think you just bring in two long-term, long-term midfielders to join them. And then split the minutes amongst them. I like. I think that's how it's changed compared to before, where I was like, Casemiro is going to slowly be phased out, Mainu is going to be slowly phased in, and therefore Amrabat can play a squad role and fill in the minutes in between. Yeah, I hear that. I think for me, like, what I would maybe ideally go for would be in the summer. I would keep Amrabat, I would sell Casemiro, and then I would get a player who can sit as a lone pivot, but is obviously more press-resistant than Casemiro. And then next year, you start Bruno Mount and that that new six, and Maynou kind of rotates into, into the six role more often than not, but maybe comes in for Mount um, in bigger matches, whatever it may be. Um, which sort of brings us nicely into the next question we had, which was um, the following... Mainu looks less comfortable as an eight. Is it just a matter of adjusting, or is he simply a more natural fit as a six? This is from Rest Defense. Um, I think it might be adjusting. I'm also not incredibly interested in the distinction between eight and six, because I think that is a description of area of the pitch as opposed to the types of actions that the player is carrying out in the match. So I think where Menu is a six 
is his capability to receive from the center back's turn and progress. Um, I think where he's an eight is possibly attacking impact. He might have, I think he might have some higher level attacking impact in his game and we're yet to really find out about that. I mean, part. that run against um, Wolves is one of the craziest things I've seen. In United exactly. Do in years. Um, exactly. Um, yeah. I so I think there might be something there. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And then the, um, the physicality stuff, I think you might argue that, you know, a lot of the players playing six for the biggest teams right now are major dual winners as well. Um, which, I think he can be a reasonably proficient dual winner, but he's not Rodri, and he's definitely not yeah. someone like Declan Rice. So in that sense, you might say he's an eight. I think what matters more is when you bring in someone to pair him, you're going to look at the things he's weak at and try and strengthen those. And then you're going to look at the things that he's strong at and how they've impacted the side and try as hard as you can not to compromise on those either. Um, whether he ends up as an eight or a six really just depends on the configuration match to match. Um, if you have more possession in the final third, you might push him further forward and leave back a more physical midfielder as a defensive presence. If United are trying to play through a press, you might bring him deeper and push another player further forward. It really just depends on the situation. I'll be honest though. I don't think I ever anticipate him being a big box impact player, which for me means he's always going to be deeper even when you have a lot of possession, which he's he's definitely a deep midfielder. Whether that's a six or an eight, I don't know is really a substantive conversation. But I don't I don't want to push him high up the pitch all the time. Um, despite obviously, I, I can we just pause for a second? What he did against Wolves is crazy. Like that was honestly one of like the most fun moments I can remember as a United fan in a long time. Like somebody that young having such a decisive, also like high quality moment, not just like a, you know, like a sweetly struck ball or, um, you know, something a little bit random, the ball falls for you in the box and you just finish it. Like absolutely took that moment by the scruff of the neck, um, which was very, very cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't really know what else to say. Like, it, it was incredible. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think basically, to summarize, the most important thing is that I don't really know whether he's a, whether he's a six or an eight long term. He is going to be one of the deeper two, I think, in a three because of his capability and buildup. And I also think that his responsibilities are more important at this stage and recruiting a, a partner who can take the other portion of the responsibilities is what's going to be key. I think from yeah. there we can move on from Menu. I agree. I think that's enough on Menu And um, midfield. Yeah, okay, let's talk about Garnacho a little bit. Uh, we got two questions about Garnacho. This is from uh, Ander Ituralde. Uh, and he asked, should slash will Garnacho be a regular starter next season for United? And we got another question from Gwyn, which was, is right wing Garnacho's best position going forward? I think I can do these in one shot, really. Um, I think you... I think I would be relatively surprised to see Rashford not playing a regular role for United next season. I think I would be very annoyed if United did not sign a right winger in the summer. 
um, either way, because even if Garnacho is a right winger, he's still the only one in the squad who is viably playing minutes. And so I think what that means is that Garnacho is going to split his time between the left wing and right wing. Whether he's a starter is going to depend on how he ranks performance-wise against Rashford and whoever comes in. On this season, I would say he's been better than Rashford, but I don't necessarily think he's like a guaranteed... Um, he's been consistently very, very high impact in a way that we've seen Rashford go through seasons and be reliably a a goal scorer and a goal creator for United. So next season, I'm not sure. Long term, I definitely think you should be planning for Garnacho to be the starter. And whether he's better at left wing or right wing, I'm really not sure. It's kind of nice that he's good at both. Yeah, I don't think he can really play right wing in matches where United are facing organized deep blocks. I'll say that. Um, I think he's. we've seen him impact these matches at right wing uh, when we're playing at speed, uh, and it's far easier to isolate players. Uh, I think he's just generally a high-quality player. He's good ball striking, uh, you know, very fast, uh, and that just means he's going to be pretty translatable across a front line in matches where there's space. Uh, I still am, I still feel pretty strongly that he's best from the left. Um, so I don't think he's based on what you said about Rashford, which I, I generally agree with unless there's, you know, something unforeseen that happens. Uh, I don't think he'll be starting at left wing and, and I think you have to get a new right winger. So I think he'll probably be the fourth forward, which is okay. Like, I think that is not a bad position for him to be, developmentally i think you know again incredibly young incredibly young i think a side of united like united stature should have more than three forwards that they can field effectively um yeah and he's he's really young i like i don't even think again i don't necessarily think hoyland should be playing 38 90s next year like i think he should probably be i i would not at all be opposed to bringing in a striker that's better than hoyland not to replace him but because you can have more than one player for each position that's really high quality. Uh, and, and that also kind of brings us over to Hoyland, who is this five Premier League matches in a row now that he scored? Anyway, uh, we, got, we got another question. This is about, it's kind of just a fun one. Uh, Tom Armstrong asks, who has the highest ceiling between Hoyland, Maynou, and Garnacho? So why don't we do that like ranked choice? Like, which do you think has the highest and lowest ceiling? Um, okay. Um... So for uh, we we were kind of like wrapping up on on Garnacho. Um an interesting thing I've been researching on Garnacho is that he has now played about yeah, he's played about just over 3090s in his senior professional career for United. And in those minutes where um, expected goals and assists are being logged. He's averaging about half an expected goal involvement without penalties per 90, which he's not even 20 yet. I think we're increasingly getting evidence that this is a player who's going to be productive at this level. And I think there's honestly a lot of evidence that he could be extremely productive at this level, um, given the fact that United haven't been that good this season and that he's shown, in my opinion, clear improvement in his ability to impact games from the start. So... That being said, I still think he is the one with the widest variation in outcomes. I think there's a very good chance that he doesn't improve that much against blocks from here. 
but there's also a good chance that he improves significantly from here and becomes a lot more impactful. So I think Garnacho for me is the highest ceiling and the lowest floor of the three. And then Hoyland and Maynou are more certain. I think I'm very confident those are both going to be very good players, fitness permitting. Um, however, I don't think their ceilings are quite as high. I don't know how I would split the two. I think relative to position in the world, I think I'm more confident that Maynou would be one of the top midfielders in the world. But in general, strikers are more impactful on match outcome than deep midfielders, I would say. And so on that, you might put Hoyland higher than Maynou. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these players have the potential to be world-class and are very, very young, um, which is awesome. Like, you know, five stars. But I, I agree with everything you said about Garnacho in particular. Like, the ceiling is really, really high. Uh, he's significantly more productive than, than Rashford was at the same age, for example. Um He's probably more productive than Martial was, but it's yeah, closer. Yeah, I think that's a lot closer. But um, he also didn't play as many center forward minutes as Martial did at that age. Um, and it was a different... Yeah, n- not important. Anyway, um, point being, there's definitely... I also think Garnacho was just better, like well, more well-rounded than Rashford was at the same age. I think there's definitely a path for him to be significantly better than Rashford. And Rashford's obviously a very good player. Um Hoyland, I think Hoyland is maybe the guy I pick, actually, uh, as, like, yeah, I just think, uh, this is so tough. This is a really, really hard question, because I think Maynou, like you said, is definitely the standout at his position. Like, I think his skill set is incredibly rare, and he's so, so, so young. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think Hoyland, he's, I just think... There's a real world where Hoyland winds up like a 20-goal-a-season non-penalty in the league striker uh, in the Premier League, and I don't think we're that far away from it. And if that's the case, I you know, I don't know. What what does Garnacho have to turn into to be more impactful than that? What does Manu have to turn into to be more impactful than that? Manu probably has to be the best midfielder in the world to be more impactful than that. Um, and Garnacho has to be like one of the five best players in the Premier League to be more impactful than that. Uh, which I don't even think either of those is impossible, which is pretty crazy to say. Um, but not th- impossible is not likely either, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, I think if I have to rank them, ooh, this is really hard because at the same time it's like, yeah, Garnacho could definitely Garnacho could be one of like could wind up being like one of the five best players in the Premier League. I actually think that is very very possible. Um, Whereas I don't think Hoyland could necessarily do that. So maybe I have Garnacho's ceiling is higher than Hoyland's in that respect. Um, but I think Hoyland's like most likely outcome maybe is higher than Garnacho's. Like I think I think I'll be surprised if he doesn't wind up being like a high teens goal scorer in the Premier League. Um Yeah. I mean this is a really data pilled <laughs> way of looking at it, but I think Garnacho has the biggest variability. Yes, for sure. I here. agree with that. But I think that means that there's still a possibility that he's going to be incredible. Um, yeah. I, so I, I think I'm, I'm sticking with Garnacho first and then maybe Yahoyland second and Maynou third. This sounds like we're low on Maynou though, but I think this says more about like how we view the position the he plays. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that doesn't make him like less special or less 
like, I mean, it does make him less valuable, I guess, in a sense. But at the same time, like it, the things you, you know, you could be valuable on a, on a macro scale, but also being valuable relative to the other players at your position is, is like another important form of conceptualizing value. Like, let's say for instance, like the best, like the average center forward in the Premier League is worth five points in, over the course of a season. Um, and the best center forward in the Premier League is worth nine points over the course of a Premier League season. And let's say your average defensive midfielder in the Premier League is worth one point, and your best uh, defensive mid- midfielder in the Premier League is worth five points. Um, oh, relative to the average player, you know, let's say Hoyland and May- Maynou become those players, Maynou is of the same value. He's, you know, four points above average. Um, this is obviously a very, very, like, this is a, a very, a deeply imperfect way of understanding value because there's so much more that goes into it than this. Uh, but just to give you an idea of, like, how Aaron and I are, I think, kind of approaching this, uh, that's that's why you wind up with this skew as you go from the front of the pitch to the back of the pitch. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. They're all great players. I'm very excited about them all. I think they can all be incredibly impactful. <laughs> so... Yeah. I I mean it's a good question, but I feel like that's a very I feel like that's a very technical answer whereas you kind of want to you kind of want to throw like a I don't know, you kind of want to throw something more interesting than like Garnacho is the least certain and therefore has the highest ceiling, but I think that's just the case. So Yeah. I mean, I would also say this. Players who can take the initiative in matches as opposed to being uh dependent on the players around them to initiate are probably the most valuable players in the sport. Um, and I think Garnacho has the capacity to be that. And I think now maybe Maynu can also, which kind of just changes what he is. Um, <laughs> All right. All right. I think we need to move from this. <laughs> no, I, but I, no, I, I don't think so. Like, no, I, I, I say this because like you can talk about Hoyland and how important goals are and how important center forwards are, but ultimately like, a winger who can create a chance out of absolutely nothing is perhaps even if even if they create fewer chances than like you know a given striker converts is perhaps more valuable. Um, no, absolutely. There's many ways to slice it, and also I think you could look at it from the perspective of the rarity of the type of player that yep. Manu yeah. is. Yep. In football right now, I was saying this on Twitter the other day, like. I I just said that I want United to buy a Maynou clone. And that player isn't even necessarily like going to be a 50 games per season player long term because you already have Maynou. But I think it's very possible you end up spending north of 50 million on that player because it's just so hard to find. I don't even think... It's something that I personally see as critically important to winning football matches right now. It's when there is a a profile of player that is valuable and not that common, you need to get those players. You need to have them because that's what some super clubs don't have. Um, I I think I don't think Arsenal have a player. I'm not saying 
none of Arsenal's midfielders are as good as Maynou, but I don't think Arsenal have a player who can quite do what Maynou does um, or what he could do at the top level. I don't think they have a player of the same profile, but I definitely think they have players who are of greater quality at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that... I think Spurs are really looking for a player like that. Um, in terms of Garnacho as forwards, I think Spurs are really looking for a player like that. Um, in terms of Hoyland, a number nine with... So far, it looks like decent finishing and really good physicals and hold-up ability. Um, I love the way I he took that chance many to win teams, today, by the way. Absolutely. Like, I don't think many teams have that. Ultimately, you can have great coaching and a great squad, but the teams winning competitions are still the ones who... I, I was saying this to someone earlier this week, right? It's like, I think it was... It was um, I want to say Max from uh, from Potshot. I was saying to him, like, you know, learning about football in a way is a really long route from saying things like, this team has Holland and this team has Messi, so they're going to win, to saying, this team has Holland, this team has Messi, they're going to win. Because after all I've learned about the game and all of these years watching the game in detail, I really still believe that the teams that have the players that the other team cannot acquire are the teams that still consistently win. Like, look at Liverpool. As much as I think, and this probably applies to coaches too, where I think Klopp and Guardiola are just exceptional coaches, but I really think a big a big thing that drives their outcomes, and you saw it today with his absence against Arsenal, is having Salah. They've just had Salah for so long that... How do you reconcile this with how we feel about United's players and manager, though? So we spent the last three weeks talking about how we don't think the man- the players are the problem, necessarily. Everything makes a difference, right? City have a coach that you cannot replicate in the market. And that means that no matter what United do, they're not going to be able to... It means two things. No matter what United do, they're not going to be able to have the same coaching impact as City because they don't have Guardiola. And number two, they need to be looking for someone who has the ability to be as good as as Guardiola in every way they can. So everything matters. So even if the coach is only 10% of the outcomes, 10% is a huge margin. It's not, I wouldn't equate that margin directly to points, but if United had 10% more points right now, they would be way closer to top four. Um, So even if the manager is only worth that little amount, it's still a huge amount. Um, the key here is that I almost look at it like, I don't want to, I don't want to be too statistical about it, but imagine a picture of a normal distribution, which I'll describe in case people aren't familiar with stats. It's kind of like a bell, right? A lot of people call it a bell curve. It's very dense at the top in the middle. And then towards the sides, it tails off. I think in football, the upper end of football is like, or the, or, the, or the top of the top tier football is like the right half of a normal distribution in that there are very, very few players who are more than, you know, more than a certain amount better than average. Like they are, there are very, there's a very small amount of players in football who make a very, very big difference. And it is, it is such a small amount that when you consider the amount of super clubs in football, there are, what, 10 to 12 maybe, who can afford to contend for these best players, there aren't enough players 
of that of that level of quality for all of them to have to have those players. And there aren't enough coaches of that quality for every team to have those coaches. And so it is crucially important to have them. Um, but it is not the only thing that's important. It's just it's just incredibly important. Because the coach can get you to a certain level. Having good players can get you to a certain level as a whole. But you can't replicate City having the best coach and the best player in the Premier League and one of the other best players in the Premier League and the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League by a landslide. It's just impossible to overcome that gap unless you can also get those those assets. Yeah, I mean, I, I would conceptualize it a little more simply, but not so differently. This is crude, and it's not entirely true, but I think it, it gives you the idea. The players define your range of outcomes, and the manager defines what you achieve within that range of outcomes. Uh, which is why, you know, United can have what we consider these catastrophic seasons, but still ultimately are just on the verge of European places. It's because you still have players who absolutely belong in Champions League sides and are just not coherently coached. Which is like, if these were actually bad players, you would see United fall out of the top half, but they never do. Um, yeah. So, anyway. Even against West Ham, right? Like... United didn't play that well. They conceded almost 15 shots in the first half and had about less than five. Um, but when it came down to it, Hoyland and Garnacho made excellent movements in transition. Those movements converted into goals. That's going to happen occasionally when you have very good players. They're going to win you matches. So yeah, basically what you're saying. I don't think Pep Guardiola can make Burnley win the Premier League. But I do think that a bad coach could make Man City lose the Premier League. Um, All right, we'll move to a question about managers. Um, Because I think it is interesting in the context of the way we talk on this podcast. Um, Rich asks, in assessing relative merits of possible successors to Ten Hag, particularly when focusing on their tactical approaches, is there a danger we underestimate the importance of charisma and man management? Strikes me that's what Ten Hag lacks most, but what makes Klopp. I think I can take this one first. First of all, I really do think that United have, as we've said all season, legitimate tactical issues this season that are not related to the team's application on the pitch, but are related to the way the team sets out to play. Which means that Ten Hag, in theory, has also lacked in that area this season. But I guess there's also an argument that Ten Hag could be getting the players or wanting the players to do something different, but doesn't have the ability to convey those instructions to the players and implement it as a result, which is possible. However, or no, not however. I don't want to diminish that aspect of the game. It is important to have people within any organization, particularly in a sport that galvanize a team or a group of players to believe in what the team is trying to do as well as believe in their ability to carry it out on the pitch. And that is clearly something that comes up a lot in conversations about Klopp because of how intense and how um, overtly passionate his teams tend to be, and, and he tends to be. So I don't want to diminish the impact of it. I will say, however, that I think it's a much more difficult area of the game to analyze from the outside. Um, I think 
a lot of it is public relations and creating a perception of the team. Last season, I think United had the perception that the players were very committed to Ten Hag style, and Ten Hag was this all-encompassing figure who was taking over the club and improving everything for the better. The same way United had that perception when Bruno Fernandes joined, and now I think maybe people talk about Bruno slightly differently. Um, I think a lot of this area of the game, and I'm not saying this in any way to question its realness, it's it's definitely a thing, but in the public sphere, it's discussed in a way that is shrouded in what we are shown and what we are told and how we are told, as opposed to what is actually true. And I think that's why on, on podcasts like this, we're not diminishing its importance. And if I was in the club and I was conducting these interviews, I would definitely put importance on what I feel and what what is conveyed best to me when interviewing these coaches but we just don't get that opportunity as fans and so we try and focus on the things that I think you kind are of the nail on the head there. easier for us to analyze from the outside one I don't think charisma and man management starts to matter until like like that stuff matters very much however if your tactics don't work there's no amount of man management that can cover that up like there's no Charisma can't get you out of uh, an approach to the game that is faulty. Like, other managers will exploit that. It doesn't matter how hard your players want to play for you or how committed they are or how charismatic you are as a person. So there's that aspect. Two, it is very real, 100%. I think we saw that in particular under Mourinho. I think we saw sort of the dressing room fall apart at the end under Solstar because new elements were introduced to it and he maybe couldn't control what the ramifications of, of, of that were. Um, and then we saw it under LBG. Uh, but like you just said, Aaron, and maybe I'm just restating your point. A lot of the time when things are going well, manager, we talk about managers. As, oh, it's because, look at his charisma. Look at how he's gotten everyone on side and pushing in the same direction. And then when things fall apart, we use it as a crutch and we say, that's why things went poorly. He lost the dressing room. I'll be honest with you. I watch the football United are playing right now. Well, hey, won this. Last year, exactly what you were just saying. There wasn't talk. I think most people consider, like thought that the charisma and man management thing had been solved. Like, oh, look, he shipped off Ronaldo when he, you know, was causing problems. And things were going well. And so, you know, the two went together. And now things are going poorly. And suddenly, I think most people perceive that the manager doesn't have those things. And I think I just question whether either was ever true. Like, um, like I think we have this tendency to just associate charisma with success. And like, oh, they're succeeding, therefore charisma must be there. And I think with the, when the reality is like when teams are winning, there's a lot of feel-good vibes and a lot of like you're just going to have a better relationship with the people around you. Like that's, that's true in any workplace, right? Like if things are going well, you're more willing to forgive other people's faults and you are happier and like you like your manager more. I think that's true in football as well. And that's not to say that some people aren't better man managers than others and that it doesn't have an impact on the game. But I, I mean, I watch United play right now and I, I think that all the players are playing very hard. Like I think, th I think there's clearly effort on the pitch. I don't think that's the primary problem. So I 
I'll be honest, I don't think we're missing, I don't think we are underplaying the importance of it because I'm seeing a team that's trying and cares and 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 they're still losing. Um Yeah, I just I yeah. I'll yeah. go one further. I think a lot of players in the team are playing well. I think they are actually like we didn't we probably won't actually get to talk about this this episode. I think Diogo Dallo has been particularly good lately. Shaw and Lissandro have been excellent. Really bad error, I thought yeah. McGuire played very well bar I think one bad error today. It was very bad, but he was otherwise excellent. The passing range was great. I think Veron's been fine. Been great for a I month. think yeah. Maynu, Hoyland, Garnacho have been in the news for how good. Yeah. Rashford has had plenty of goal involvements in spite of all the other news around him recently. Largely, the entire team is playing well, and United still aren't dominating matches and winning and, and universally winning games. Like I, d- I don't think this is a problem of player application. Yeah, if, if I thought very evidently, if at I this saw point. what I thought were sound tactical fundamentals implemented on the pitch, and but at the same time, you know, United are losing matches, and we're getting reports that there's big dressing room problems, and we're you know we're seeing the manager lash out in press conferences like we've seen before. I think we'd be having a much bigger conversation about charisma and man management. But I don't. Personally, I don't think that that is what explains what's happening today on the pitch. Um, in this instance, that's not to say that it's never the explanation. And so I think it's yeah. a really good question because I do think there's there's definitely an inclination to underplay the human side of everything, which I think is ironic because I think we all experience like human effects in the workplace, in school, on teams that we're a part of. Um, and then, you know, there definitely is a group of people that turns around and denies that it's a factor in football. And that's, like, obviously not the truth. But I don't know. I, I just I, – I'm kind of – I'm I'm really against it as a crutch to explain, like, oh, it's always human factors. When, like, this is also a game that has, you know, real strategies and, you know – tactics and approaches that interact with one another and you can be outsmarted no matter how hard you play um and that is that is how i perceive the phenomena that are affecting united right now yeah so two more things on this the first is the only possibility in which this is a manager charisma issue to me i think is if the players are going, we don't believe what he's saying. We are going to go out with a different approach yeah, good point. and do our own thing and play hard. In which case, I, I think I think that's the one case where you can say, okay, Ten Hag is not conveying his, um, his instructions properly to the players in a way that they believe in. There aren't enough discussions going on to get these players on board with what's being done. Fine. The second thing I'll say is this. As someone who has not a massive platform, but I think we have a reasonably sized platform, and we get to talk about football and our voices are heard more than the average person when we talk about this stuff. I feel a level of... I feel a greater level of responsibility when talking about character and um, personality of the figures in question than yeah, I do how good they are talking at about yeah. tactical and performance-related things. 
Exactly. I feel it is a much more personal thing to say that someone is not committed or lacks social skills or is not well liked, lacks um, (laughs) professional expertise than it is to say, yeah, or is not well liked or is having mental health problems, um, which is something we've seen a lot of this season. People just alleging mental health incidents in either direction when, like, I don't think it's right to say someone is having mental health problems when it hasn't been confirmed. And I don't think it's right to say someone is not having mental health problems either. Um, these are just not things that I feel comfortable talking about to a large platform which is when I don't have a level of confidence speak with more as to whether they're true or not. It doesn't invalidate this direction. question, which is a good um, question. I want to emphasize that. It is, a, it is a good question um, because these things are definitely saying that I don't know and that I feel a level of responsibility when I talk about more serious character-related allegations or um, or assumptions is not me saying they don't exist. These things are incredibly important um, and their importance should be emphasized by people who have access to the information required to interpret them. Um, because it affects how we coach players and how we view players in the public sphere. And that also affects the players. Um, Public perceptions can affect mental health and application and management. If the fans are angry, I'm sure that is reflected in the mood at the club because the club, the fans are transactionally customers, but community-wise more than that. And so the mood of the fans definitely drives the mood of the organization. No doubting any of that. It's just that it's really hard as two people who live on the other side of the globe and do not experience them every day to talk about that stuff. And I feel like the things we say about that stuff can be consequential in a negative way, more so than when we just talk about tactics or execution of a plan or players playing well versus yeah. not playing well. Which is not in our opinion that, I mean, of what I we've think seen we have on the pitch. About like you know off the field incidents and how they may be affecting the club. Anyway. Big digression here. I think bottom line, man management and charisma, definitely important. I don't think we are underappreciating it. I think we are giving it, like, I think, I think, like, I, I, I'll be honest. I think the tactics matter more, um, especially when you're interviewing somebody. You're really not going to know how somebody handles people until they're handling people. So I think, like, it is not wise to go out looking for a manager based on, interpersonal skills and have tactics as a secondary thing. Like, I think it makes much more sense to say, we want to find somebody who we believe in their, t- in them tactically. And based on the interview, we'll see what we think about them as an, inter- in and their interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Well, one thing you say a lot on this podcast is number one, it is very important to be right. Number two, when you are not right, it is very important to admit it. And I think that also applies to the club, right? Like, it's impossible. If if in this sport it was possible to get <laughs> yeah. everything right, more teams would be good. Like, more teams would have cottoned on to this by now and be just super well-run, very effective. Um, Yeah, and they're not. And so that's because there's error. And even when you have good process, sometimes your process is not perfect. Sometimes your process is perfect and there's just things you can't figure out. Um, and it's important to be able to go back and say, I was wrong about that. Um, and some things you're just not going to know. Like when United signed Mount, I did not know that he'd be injured for most of the season. 
And that's a huge thing that I don't really think I was able to know at that time. Um, and the same applies for the club. Maybe they didn't know that. Um, there's so many incidents of this in, in football. It is one of the most difficult sports to predict and model and innovate in. Um, and so you just always have to keep that in mind. Yeah. And then as to, to tie this up, I will say like the reason for this relatively meta discussion about the sport and how it is talked about in a podcast where we talk about the sport is because we're obviously going to talk about the things that are more accessible to us. I don't think that makes them more important. It's just, it's just what is available to us based on our knowledge, based on what information is available to us. Um, it is not a statement of what we think is important, rather a discussion yeah. of the things that I, we I'll are able this. to discuss that I are important. I will and do make statements about what I think is important in the game. And I will, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm just going to, I'll say this even if I don't really need to. I do think a manager's tactical acumen and understanding of the game are more important than their man management. That's not to, but like, you know, it could... That, it, that doesn't mean that the second thing doesn't matter. It's the same way I might say, like, I think it's more important for wingers to be good at crossing than they are at shooting. That doesn't mean I don't think it matters how well a winger shoots, right? Um, yeah, and I think we can we can close that topic there. All right. On that note, I think that's a good time to wrap it up. We still have some stuff that we'd like to cover next week. The good thing about when United play decently and score goals is that it gives us stuff to talk about um even if they're not as good as we'd like for them to be um but other than that thank you guys so much for turn for tuning in and hopefully we'll see you next time hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details you can follow us at devils itd pod on twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.